Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Barago, known on Twitter as ZT Mets Fan and Met Fan Rich, and I am thrilled to bring you a very special edition of the Metsian Podcast with Sam Rich and Mike. We have an incredibly special guest with us tonight, but before bringing on our guest, I'd like to bring on my co-conspirators of the Metsian Podcast, and tonight we'll bring uh, Mr. Sam Maxwell on. He has several nicknames, uh, the CEO of the podcast, the um, the brain trust, all those things. So, Sam, A, how are you tonight, and B, where are you tonight? I am doing well. Thank you, Rich. Thanks for asking. Um, hope you're doing well as well. I am currently in Hell's Kitchen, Manhattan, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm on the borough that we're going to be talking some baseball about. Can't wait to do so. And uh, before we bring on our guests, I'd like to bring on my third partner here, the third person on the podcast, my second partner, Mr. Mike LeCollant. Mike hails from the borough of Brooklyn, which in and of itself is quite established in baseball lore. So, Mike, how are you tonight? I'm doing well. How are you, Rich? Hello, Sam. Excited to talk baseball tonight with our guests. And with that, there's, there's no point in waiting. We're busting our buttons to bring our guests on. So tonight we have Mr. Frank Thomas with us, and um, and for those of us Mets fans, we know that Mr. Thomas was an original Met. Uh, Mr. Thomas played 16 years in the major leagues and swatted 286 home runs. In addition to that, he's a three-time All-Star, and we are very much looking forward to talking baseball from days gone by and, and current day baseball with him. So at this point, I'd like to bring on Mr. Frank Thomas, and, and also in current day, he's very involved in charitable endeavors. So good evening, Mr. Thomas. How are you tonight? And if you could please tell us about your, your charitable work. I'm just fine, and I appreciate you gentlemen uh, having me on. Uh, I have two charities, and let me tell you what they are. The first one is Camp Happy Days, Kids Kicking Cancer, and the second one is Courageous Kids, a Safe Haven for Kids with Cancer. I've been with these kids, playing a softball game with them, helped them swing the bat to hit the ball, picked them up on my shoulders, ran around the bases with them, big smiles on their faces, and this is what made it all worthwhile for me. And I felt that because I was in a public eye that I could really help these organizations to raise some money and give these kids a little bit of happiness in their life. Well, I mean, well, that that's just amazing. It is amazing that you do that. Um, and how do you go about raising that money? 
Well, I show my pictures. Uh, I have pictures of every team that I played for, black and white, except Houston. I only have a black and white for Houston. And then I have four collectible photos also that are, and the one collectible photo is probably the most important one because it's when I made baseball history in 1961 when I was with the Milwaukee Braves on June the 8th, 1961. We as a team hit four home runs in succession in one inning by four different players. Eddie Matthews hit the first one in the seventh inning in Cincinnati off Jim Maloney. Hank Aaron hit the second one off Maloney. They changed pitches and brought in Marshall Bridges. Joe Adcock hit the third home run off of Bridges. And I, Frank Thomas, the original one, made baseball history by hitting the fourth <laughs> one. Out of all the great players who have ever played this game of baseball, I am the very first Major League player that has ever done this, and I personally don't think it's ever going to be broken. I think you're right. I think you're right. And you know, I'm looking at that 1961 season, and, and you had a, a very fine season, uh, 281 yep. batting average with uh, 27 home runs, including that feat that you just mentioned. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and then, I, got, then I got sold to the Mets. Well, and I, I, that's where I personally want to start. And before I do, I just want to say, you know, in looking at, at your seasons, your 1958 season, which was one of your all-star appearances, 35 home runs, 109 RBIs, 281 batting average. I think I would take that. Uh, that's pretty darn good. That is one hell of a season, sir. Um, 1955, you were also an all-star. Um, and then also in 1954. But I, that, what, what I'd like to do is perhaps go around the table. You know, I'd like to ask a question, give Sam a chance to do so, then Mike can kind of go around. Um, but where I would like to start is with what you just said. Here you are, a veteran. You are three-time All-Star. Achieved that feat you just mentioned when you were with the Braves. Um, so when you were sold to the Mets, when you were sold to the Mets, what exactly was on your mind? Like, how did you react to that news? That you were now going to be well, expansion New York Mets. Sam, let me explain that to you. Okay. After the four home runs were hit in June, John McHale, the, the uh, uh, general manager of the, of the of the Braves, called me up his, in his office and said, we want to sign you for next year. And I looked up, up and I says, John, this is just June. I'm going to go bad and you'll be sorry. And I might go good, and I'll be sorry. But I will sign before I go home. So two weeks before the season was over, he called me back in his office again. He says, we want to sign you for 1962. I said, before we go anywhere, I want to ask you one question, and I want you to be honest and sincere with me. What are your intentions for me come 1962? His answer to me was, you are going to be our left fielder in 1962. And I then said to him, John McHale, you're the general manager. You bring out whatever contract you want me to sign, and I will sign it. I'm not mentioning any figures. I am going to sign it because you're giving me a chance to play baseball again, which I love very much. And I think he did this, you know, signed me because I think he got together with George Weiss and said, I'll get him signed. And then you'll take it from there. Well, after I was signed, 
And then I got the, the word that I'm going to the New York Mets. And it didn't make any difference to me where I was going. I mean, I don't care where I was, as long as I was playing baseball, okay, because I love the game. And I called George Weiss, and I said to him, did you talk to John McHale to get this absolute episode established? But how was it arranged? Because he says, you signed with them. I can't give you any more. And I said, well, okay, that's the way it's going to be. I'll take my lumps, okay, because I was honest with the person, and the person wasn't honest with me. And that's how it all established why I became original Met. Amazing. Amazing story that that's how that worked out, that you, know, you were signed, and then Unintended. it almost seemed like, yeah, it seemed like you were, it was a predestined thing, right, where you were going to be on your way over that's, over to the Mets. And, uh, I, yeah. I, that's, that's, my, that's my understanding after I kind of digested it to a certain extent. All general managers are like that. They're all a pup out of place. <laughs> And, and it's interesting because, you know, they compete, right? They compete with each other, but I've always sensed that, you know, that there's kind of like a brotherhood, but yet you compete with your brother and you'd kind of rip your brother off if you could. But on the other hand, you know, you, you, there's kind of a fraternity. It's very weird, right? That's a, absolutely. All the way down, Ricky, t- Ricky taught them all. Mm, there you go. Yeah, mm, that's, that's wow, a great yeah, name. interesting. Branch Ricky. Um, all right, so Sam. It's your turn to, to ask Mr. Thomas the question. What would you like to, to ask him? Well, I, you know, I guess that, that's a good uh, place to go. Uh, uh, Mr. Thomas, this is Sam Maxwell. Thank you again for joining us. So um, I, I, I shameless plug, I, I want to make an HBSL TV series about Brooklyn and the Dodgers. And I'm sure outside of from the Mets perspective, I'm, I'm going to want to interview you about your Pittsburgh years. Uh, during that era, but what I'm curious from the Mets' perspective is going into being an original 1962 New York Met, having played the Dodgers and the Giants up until 1957, what was your feelings, experiences, uh, just any, everything you were thinking about, about becoming part of, of the New York baseball experience? Well, I look at it this way. You know, New York is strictly a National League town, Okay. And once the Dodgers left and the Giants left, you know, uh, the people were sad. I loved New York for the simple reason because they were great fans. Uh, whether we won or whether we lost, they they cheered us on. Okay, they stayed with us. And and they had an inkling that uh, we had a pretty good ball club. The only thing is we didn't have the pitching. Um, if you take these 62-year where we lost 51 games in the seventh, eighth, and ninth innings by one run. Mm. And if we take that 51 games and put it on to the ones that we won, we'd be fighting for the pennant. It, and and it's such, that's such a remarkable thing about the 1962 team and, and something that I was going to ask you about. Um, I, and, in fact, the, the man who got us in I touch. Can't, I can't hear you. Can you hear me now? No, very, very faintly. Okay. Um well, uh, I'm trying trying better now, but uh, uh, can, is it is this good? Hey, Frank. I, I'm here, but I can't I can't hear you. 
You're all jumbled up. Mike, let me tell yeah, you. We'll, we'll move to Mike. We'll move to Mike, Sam. And, and if you want, Sam, if you want to send me a question, I can ask him for you. It is it is a little distorted. So um, I could ask your questions for you if you'd like can to do I, that. Can so I, I can be, text I'm you. sorry. Is this better? Yeah, I can hear you now. All right. So, Frank, what, what I was wondering about is exactly what you just mentioned, about 1962, how you lost. Uh, 51 games, you just said, in the 7th, 8th, and ninth inning, and that you wouldn't right. be going for the pennant. I mean, if if you just remove half of those games, you guys are not nearly thought of as the joke that everybody uh, uh, considers you now. You know, we had a great hitting ball club. You know, we scored an awful lot of runs. We lost ball games by every inch, every way that you can think of losing a ball game, okay? <laughs> and... That's the way the game is, you know. And people would ask uh, ask me and ask everybody else, you know, how do you how do you feel playing for the Mets, losing all those games? Uh, ball players have so much pride about themselves, and you know, you play every day, and you can get beat fifteen to one today, and tomorrow you can go out and beat the other team fifteen to one. That's what makes the game so great, okay? Because you all go out every day and you start at the first inning and it played a ball game. And what transpires in the next eight innings after that, you know, that's all you can do is do the best you can. I always looked at it this way. I always said when I went into the clubhouse after the ball game was over, if I gave 100% of the God-given talent given to me to play this great game, I can't complain. Here, here. Mike. Amen. Amen. Um, so, Ms. Thomas, we're going to move over to Mike LaCollant, and Mike um, is the gentleman that I introduced from Brooklyn, and he would, uh, he'll take the next question. Hello, Mr. Thomas. Like I said earlier, it's a pleasure and an honor speaking with you. Uh, I would like to kindly ask you, as a New Yorker born and bred, and I'm only 53, uh, I would I like can't to hear you, Mike. Change... <laughs> can you hear me? I can hear you now. Okay. I was wondering if you can paint a picture of playing at the polo grounds. You want a picture of me playing in the polo grounds? I was wondering if you could describe what it was like playing in at the polo grounds with those odd dimensions and the history behind that ballpark. Well, the polo grounds was a great ball player, a great ball club, uh, field for me because I was strictly a pool hitter. Okay, and the porch was very, very close. But every home run that I hit in the polo grounds wasn't a cheap home run. I mean, it was over top of the roof most of the time. Okay, and people say, "Well, you're you're, you're hitting a good ballpark." Well, I hit that year. Okay, I hit 18 home runs in the polo grounds, and I hit uh, 17 home runs on the road. So you know. Your home park is supposed to be a favorite park for you. Now, when I played for Pittsburgh, it's 365 down the line with a 475-foot in left center and 550 or whatever it is in dead center wasn't a good ballpark for me. You're supposed to right. hit more home runs in your home ballpark than you are away. And in 58, when I hit the, uh, you know, the 35 home runs, most of them were hit in uh in Pittsburgh, because at that time we had the um, the, the gardens for uh, for Ralph Kiner. 
Gotcha. And, and if I may, I would also like to uh, ask you about your interactions with Mrs. Joan Payson. Let me ask you a question. Can you guys call me back on a different number? Uh, yes. Yes, sure. Uh, okay, I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you a number to call back because I don't know if it's my phone or whether it's your phone. But uh, if you call me at, at four one or seven two four. Mm-hmm. Well, ho- hold on, Frank. Listen, I'm going to let the guys talk, and I'm going to talk to you on the other line, so we're not talking about the phone number uh, off air, uh, on air. I mean, uh, uh, guys, right. go ahead. Romo, you, go, you go ahead. Seven two four what? Yeah, one eight one one. Okay. Okay. Thank you for that. Can you hear me? Okay. This is Rich again, Mr. Thompson. You hear me? Okay. Perhaps not. Maybe maybe uh, Sam has him on the side already. Yeah, I think we lost Rich. I I tell you that stat is is amazing. You know, losing all those games in the seventh, eighth, and ninth inning. Uh, That is amazing. Uh, that was a good hitting team. You look around, and there's a lot of underappreciated people involved with the with, with the '62 Mets, with, with the '62 Mets. And I'm talking about guys like Charlie Neal uh, and and Gus Bell, who earlier in their careers had very very good years, you know. And of course, there's Gil Hodges and 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 Richie Ashburn. Uh, I always look back on that '62 team uh, with wonder. Obviously, neither one of us experienced it. I always wonder what that would have been like in 62, being at the Polo Grounds, watching the New York Mets. Yeah, especially especially when you consider that, you know, that New York had been without National League Baseball for, you know, five years. And, and, here, and he's right. You know, what he said, that they had Gil Hodges on the team. They had Duke Snyder. They had, you know, all these guys. They had Frank Thomas. You know, they had all these guys. And they really did have, although, you know, a team that was getting a bit older, they, they really had a lot of hitters. They really did. I mean, if you go back, uh, Gus Bell, uh, when he played with the Reds, I mean, he was hitting 30. In 53, he had 30 home runs and, uh, and had 105 RBIs. 55, 27 home runs, 104 RBIs. 59 with the Reds, 19 home runs, 115 RBI. So, you know, you're talking about players with – with, with clout, uh, and they were all assembled at the polo grounds. I, 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 Sam calls it a, a guys. I wanted to let you know that we have Frank again. Okay, take it away, Rich. Okay, sounds good, Mike. Thank you. And, and this is Rich again, Mr. Thomas. And, and um, so the question I'd like to ask you is about going back to what you said to me a few minutes ago. You your contract is sold to the New York Mets, and okay, right. you're going to be part of an expansion team. In New York, there's some good there. But here's my point. Casey Stengel was going to be your manager. So what did you know of him prior? And what was it like? We see all these stories about him, and we hear all these stories. What was it actually like to play for Casey Stengel? Well, it was great playing for him because, you know, I played every day. And, you know, the stories that were told about him and stuff like that, you know, sitting on the bench – he didn't say very much. I can just remember one story. Uh, we had a man on on first and second in the seventh inning, and Solly Hamus, the coach at third, was looking in. I said, Casey, Solly's looking for a, for a sign. He says, 
we're not going to bunt. <laughs> we're going to surprise the team. And that's the only story that I can remember about him, except for one other time when I went through that uh, section of August 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, when I hit six home runs in three consecutive games. And after I hit the first one, he didn't say anything. After I hit the second one, I come in, and he says, where'd you get those glasses? I says, the doc gave them to me. He said, well, go in and tell him to order a grocer for the rest of the team. <laughs> That's funny. That's a great story. Uh, thank you for sharing that. And, Sam, I believe you're up next. So, Frank, let's go all the way back to the beginning. Why don't, why don't you tell us about, you know, one, where you were born, uh, what your personal history is, as well as the first moment you saw that, that baseball, that they actually, like, like go, go all the way back as deep as you can as to when the first time you met that actual physical ball. Okay. I was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania on June 11, 1929. And my dad uh, was a superintendent of the laundry department at McGee Hospital, but he only had one arm because it was caught in a mangle. And so my uncle Mike, okay, when I was five years old, would go outside with me and he had a baseball and he we played catch with me. And from that time on, I says, I want to become a major league ball player. And from five years old on, but sidetracked when I was in uh, eighth grade and a priest came in and says to me, you know, why don't you come up to Mount Carmel, which is across from Niagara Falls for the, for the summer. Okay. And we're going to talk to you about maybe you want to become a priest. And I said, well, okay, I'll go up. So I went up there and, you know, I, I played all summer long. They wouldn't hit, they wouldn't let me bat right-handed because I hit the ball too far. They wouldn't let me pitch because I threw the ball too hard. All right. So, but I had a lot of fun and then I decided to go there. So now I went, my high school days were spent in the seminary and I was in my novitiate. I had my habit ready to have my religious name when I was going to, what was going to be my priest name. And I doubted my vocation. And so one of the kids was going home for an operation in Pittsburgh. And I gave him a letter and I says, take this to, you know, call my mom and tell her to come to the hospital and visit you and give her this letter. Well, in the meantime, she came home and she's crying. And my dad said to her, after I found out, says, you know, why are you crying? And he put two and two together because she had just come from seeing me, okay, or seeing the kids at the hospital. And so <laughs> she told him all about it. And he went and he wrote a letter to the priest in charge of the, at the seminary. In the meantime, you know, we weren't allowed to send letters out and stuff like that. So uh, the priest said to me, he said, you want to go home? I says, yes, I, I sure do. And he, he says, go down to chapel and pray and make sure that you're doing the right thing, which I did. And he came back again and asked me again, you sure you want to go home? I says, yes. And then he gave me the letter from my dad. Well, <laughs> you know, I, I went back and I said, Father, I lied to you. I says, you know, what I want to do when I go home, I want to become a major league ball player. I want to become a major league ball player. That's what I want to do. Okay? I only played 41 games of Sandlot baseball. It was like a miracle. My 42nd game was in professional baseball. You there? 
Yeah, yeah. That's I, I, I love the fact that you were the uh, you know the two choices you had was either you know becoming a clergyman playing baseball. It, it, so if you could talk a little bit about your faith. Well, you know, uh, being in the seminary taught me an awful lot, okay? And going into baseball, my first year at Tallahassee, Florida, you know, I don't, right now, I, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't swear, I don't have any bad habits. The only bad habit I have is I had five women at home, you know, when my first, when my first wife was alive, okay? And um, she died seven years ago, okay? But we had eight kids, okay? And when I left the seminary and said that I was going to become a major league ball player, I felt if I became the major league ball player that I wanted to be, that I could help young kids. And I did this in my first year at Tallahassee, Florida, with the manager, Jack Rothrock. And he says to me, Frank, you can't get to the major leagues walking. you got to swing the bat. Okay. Now these kids used to swear on the bench. I grabbed one kid by the throat and I said, don't do that. I don't like that. And I sat back and I said, you know, I can't tell these kids what they should do, but maybe by living my example that they'll see what I'm doing and they won't do it. And it got to a point where they wouldn't swear when I was around. So uh, it did something. And that's why I'm doing the things with the charity, because I feel that I was in the public eye. I was well-liked in baseball and every team that I played for. And I felt that maybe I can help somebody along the way with these charities. And so far it has worked pretty well, pretty well. Well, you know, Frank, that is it seems like you are a man of the people. Go ahead, Rich. Oh, no, I'm sorry, Sam. I, I was going to say, Mr. Thomas, it, it sounds like, you know, you not only at a very young age, you had to make a very difficult choice, right, between the religious life Absolutely. or Absolutely. – But, you know, it also sounds like you combined the two, if I may, because here you are setting an example for young, young, younger men, right? And it seems right. like you were able to bring the two together. Is that right? Absolutely. Good, good, good. It's a good life to have. <laughs> It is. No, it totally is. And, you, and the fact that you, know, that you help bring other people along is, um, is obviously, you know, a, a character, a, a tribute to someone's character. So, Mike, uh, what would you like to ask Frank Thomas? Uh, you see, Mr. Thomas, uh, good, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm such a uh, – I'm so hungry for history. I would like to know, you started at Pittsburgh when you were a rookie. Branch Rickey was the general manager there. And you were in the minor league in their system for a couple of years. Uh, I would ask you to elaborate on your interactions with Branch Rickey. Well, <laughs> I really don't like to talk about the man because I, I I don't like him. Okay, for what he did to me. Okay, after the '53 season, okay, which was my first year in in uh, in the major leagues, my first full year. I had a pretty good year where I hit 30 home runs and drove in 109 runs, which is still a record today from Pittsburgh. And it's been a long time in there. No one else, I come up as a center fielder, and no one has beat that record ever since I did that. Okay? So I went in to talk contract with him. And he said to me, uh, what would you like to have? 
And I was only making, I think, $6,000 a year. And I says, I would like to have $15,000. I says, because I have kids and I, you know, and the extra little money that I would get, you giving me $9,000 more, we'll, bring, we'll put more shoes on the kids, okay? So he says to me, Frank, you go along with what I'm offering you, 12000 and if you have another good year, I'll take real good care of you. Okay, 1954, I have another good year. I walk into his office again, and he says, what would you like to have? Well, in the meantime, I told him that I would like to have $25,000, okay? And (laughs) I wanted to double my contract, a little more than double my contract. Well, now he's in Florida. The twig who I'm dealing with is in Pittsburgh, and I'm in Pittsburgh. And I put the radio, the television on for a ball game that's played in Bradenton, and it comes right out on the screen. If Thomas doesn't get $25,000, he's not going to play. Now, the only three that knew what I'd asked for was the old man, Twig, and me. And I said, <laughs> you know, and I called Twig, and Twig said, well, that was a mistake. I said, no, it wasn't. I said, your dad's a liar. That's what I told him right to his face, okay? So now, Chili Doyle was a writer for the Pittsburgh Sun-Telegraph. And he would go to church on Sunday, and he'd see my dad at church, and he'd ask my dad, how's Frank doing? He says he's doing very well, okay? So Chili would put a piece in the paper, okay? And that went on for I don't know how many, how many you know, Sundays, and every time he see my dad, he'd ask the question. Okay, in the meantime, uh, Lee Hanley and Frankie Gustine had a radio show, okay? And they really plugged me, okay? So... I had nothing to do with any of this stuff, okay? Just Julie Doyle putting in a paper and Lee Hanley and, and Frankie Gustine announcing on the paper, why, why doesn't he bring Thomas up? You know, he's, he's hitting the ball very well down, down in Florida and, and at New Orleans and every place else. So I said to the twig, you know, I, I'm not getting anywhere with you. Why don't you let me talk to your dad? He said, well, dad's in Florida, but he's coming home. I said, well, when he comes home, I would appreciate it if you'd give me the opportunity. You ask him if I can come out and see him, okay? Because back then, we did our, our own negotiations. Today, they don't do that. They have an agent that does all the work for them, so you're kept out of it, okay? And you won't get in any trouble like, like I was in, you know, because Ricky made the trouble. I didn't because I had nothing to do with it. So he comes home, and I walk into his office, and he has all his stuff on the desk, all these papers and everything, and he just brushed them all off the table. He said, do you negotiate with the newspapers? He says, I'll read the newspaper, and that's how we'll do our negotiations. And he kept rambling on and rambling on, and I said, are you finished? He said, yes. I said, well, Mr. Rick, I said, I don't know why I'm calling you Mr. I said, but I, I guess because of how I was brought up that I, I'm being that type of person. And... I says, I had nothing to do with that. My dad is interested in me the same as you're interested in your son, and I walked out. That was my, that's my discussion with him. And, you know, Kiner, had, Kiner hated him you know, for what he said to him. And like I said, I went to a Sabre conference, okay, here in Pittsburgh, 
Dick Grote was supposed to go, but he got sick, and the pirates called me and asked me if I'd go. And while I was there, the guy who was in charge of the um, down in wherever it is, and <laughs> he, he got up and he sp- spoke, and, and everything that he said was everything great about Ricky. And when I got up and I said, "Can I ask you a question? Did, didn't Ricky do anything wrong?" <laughs> And he looked at me. I said, well, I'll tell you a few things he's done wrong. Now, in <laughs> 1950, let's see, after the 54 season, I held out, okay? And now I held out for 17 days. And I was working out of Pittsburgh, so I wasn't crazy, you know, not to do that. So I wasn't getting anywhere with Twig. And, you know, and finally him and dad got together, I guess, and he offered me – the difference is $18,000, okay? And I just said to him, you know, if you want an, un, uh, an unhappy ball player, I said, that's what you're going to get. But I says, I can be unhappy, but I won't let baseball, you know, dictate to me because I love the game so much. I mean, I'll go out and do play 100%. So now I go to spring training, and I'm down in Bradenton, and the old man is coming towards me early in the morning. He passes me, doesn't say anything. You know, I'm glad you're here and stuff like that. I go to the ballpark, and Fred Haney's the manager. I'm in the lineup that day against the New York Yankees. Ryan Doring is pitching. The first time I got up, I hit a home run. Next time up, I bunted down to the third baseline and beat it out. Because the third baseman usually play me deep in the, you know, in, in, in the infield. Okay, so if we're back in, in the outfield, then I bunt and I get a, a sure base hit. So that's the whole story in regards to that. Now, after about, oh, two or three weeks, I get the flu. And I'm throwing up all over the place. And finally, I throw up in front of Fred Haney. He says, you've been sick? And I said, I sure have. I said, I've lost 17 pounds in three weeks. He said, nobody told me. I said, well, the doc should have told you that. Okay. So he takes me into his office, and he says, I'm going to play you. Ricky says, I have to play you. Okay. So I played. I played sick, okay, because I love the game. And that didn't help me any at all. So finally, during the season, we're in Cincinnati. And I get a call from the old man who's in Cincinnati, so I want to see you up in my room. So I go up to his room, and I say to him, you know, you, you wanted to see me? He says, yes. He says, all the writers and, and newspaper men are saying to me, it's because of me that you're having a bad year. I said, Mr. Ricky, you know, this is water over the dam. I mean, you know the story what happened. You're the one that made it happen, okay? And he then said to me, I'm going to tell you something. And I was the first to know he was going to retire. He says, when I, do, when I retire, he says, I will tell whoever's taking my place not to cut your salary. And I said, Mr. Ricky, I don't want anything from you. You do what you want to do. I'm not going to ask you for anything, but I'm going to tell you this. You're nothing but a liar, Okay. I said, you tell me you don't go to the ball games on Sunday, but you do. Okay. And he never said a word back to me. I walked out of, the, out of his room, 
And from that time on, he never said anything to me. But he knew I was right in that respect. And I just tell it as it is. I don't pull any punches. I tell it to their face, right up behind their back. Fascinating. You there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay. No, it, it is fascinating. fascinating story, Mr. Thomas. And, Rich, if you don't mind, Mr. Thomas, I'd like you to contrast that with your experience with Mrs. Joan Payson. Oh, I, uh, you know, I didn't have much, much to do with Joan, okay, except the only time that I had any dealing in talking with her was in St. Petersburg in spring training, and, and she invited all the players to a dinner, okay? And I'm sitting next to her, and the waiter come over and says, you know, Mrs. Payson, how would you like your steak? She, and pardon the expression, I'm just I'm repeating what she said. She says, cut off its ass and wipe it up and bring it out to me. Cut off its horns. And I looked at her and I said, what did you just say? And she said it again. And I just, I sat back and I said, golly, I, I never heard that before. But that's the only uh, encounter I had with her. I thought that's it was cute. Great. <laughs> that's great. Take it away, Rich. That, those are great stories, and you're listening to the Metsian Podcast with Sam, Rich, and Mike, and we are thrilled to have Mr. Frank Thomas, original Met, three-time All-Star with us. And, you know, you told the story, Mr. Thomas, about the 54-55 seasons, and, and just to give the listeners some context, in 54, 23 home runs, 94 RBIs, 298 batting average, outstanding by anybody's standards, 55, 25 home runs, 72 RBIs, and a 245 average, both year all-stars and all-star appearances for you. So, um, and it, it's interesting, you know, what, what we hear, the lore about Branch Rickey, you, you just made it, you, you made it real for us because coming off of all-star appearances, you know, he still, he still was tough on you, right? Yep. I mean, I, I just tell the truth. I mean, I don't pull any punches. I mean, I told it right to his face. And, and, and that's the type of person that I am. But you know, I, I love the I love the '58 All Star because the players voted you in. I relish that 1958 All Star game in Baltimore, Maryland. And even um, though I'm even though Frank, I made Frank, the air, uh, I'm I'm curious. Then, do you think that's just generally how it should be? Do you think that uh, having the fans vote is makes it too much of a popularity contest, especially exactly the way that it's been now? That's exactly what it is. I mean, they stuffed the ballot box. Yeah. Players will vote <laughs> there you for go. the player who's having a great time, a great year at that particular playing season. It's my opinion. Rich, I'll, I'll, I'll take it back to you if you want to, wherever you want to go from here. Sure. Um, so, no, and that, that is an issue, the, the, the stuffing of the ballot box. And I've always believed that the players should vote for, uh, for the All-Stars. So where I'd like to go with it, I'd like to bring it – a little bit, you know, into modern era and ask you, you know, I'm sure, well, let me ask, I don't want to assume. Do you watch the games religiously still, Mr. Thomas? Like, do you, are you invested in the game still? Absolutely. I mean, I go, I go to probably 10 or 15 games during the season, okay? And, you know, uh, I sit until the last out of the ninth inning. And when the players go, when we have a meeting or something, and they and they, after the dinner they would we'd all go to the ball ballpark, and half of them would leave after the third inning. 
I would not do that because I love the game so much. Okay, and I just wanted to see. I don't like what's going on in the game. Uh, it, it's it's all computerized now. Okay, how many times you hit the ball to right field? How many you hit the right center? How many hit the dead center? How many hit the left field and left center? You know, and the, the switches that they make. You know, if I'm a, if I'm playing today, okay, and they put the shift on, okay, and have two people on my side of the infield. Okay, when I was 55 years old and went to an old, uh, old-timers game, they had two players, you know, close by in the diamond, and I hit the ball right through them, in between them, okay, because I was that, that strong of a hitter, okay, and I hit the ball pretty hard. And if I were playing today, I would be bunning, okay, and, and beating them all out because they wouldn't be able to throw me out We're playing back in left field. <laughs> so, and that's it's, it's exactly what... It's all computerized today. It's, it's all computerized. I mean, you know, uh, they they never give a pitcher a chance, a young kid a chance to work out of a, 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 you know, a problem. Here at Pittsburgh, we had a pitcher pitching a two-hitter, seventh inning. First two men got on, he got pulled out of the ball game. Okay, now if a hitter is playing and there's a man on second and third and only one out... You know, instead of giving that kid a chance to hit a fly ball or get a base hit, he yanks him for an experienced player. To me, that is so wrong, okay? Managers today love to have the players like them. And if you want to be a manager in the major leagues, you cannot have that. you got to be the manager. you got to tell the people and the players, you're going to do it my way. And, you know, if the players are making so much money, I'll probably tell the manager to go to hell. Hard to express. <laughs> but uh, that's that's my opinion. I just don't I just don't like it. I don't like what they're doing now. Okay, playing the ball game with the virus. Okay, let's pretend that somebody, one of the stars, gets the virus and he dies. Who's going to foot the bill? You know. Some of the ballplayers aren't going to play because they say my family means more to me. And it's all money. That's exactly what it is. It's all money. It is. It is. Hello? And so, yeah, can can you hear us? I'm okay. Can you hear us? What's that? No, it's, it's the oh, delay, okay. Rick. You can hear us okay? Every, I think everything's great. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. All right. So the um, the next question I wanted to ask you, we just did a beautiful lead into what I wanted to ask was, in the current game, there are so many metrics and analytics available. So you're a power hitter, obviously. Would you, if someone came to you and said, you know, Frank, um, this pitcher, his spin rate on his curveball is this. His propensity over two years to throw the percentage of curveballs versus sliders, all this, all this, fills your head with all this computerized stuff. Now, would you think of that as a competitive advantage, or would you rather have it the way you did, where you just were, you were a raw hitter, you went up there and you saw the ball and hit the ball? Which way would you prefer? Uh, I, I was different than any other ball player. I never looked for any pitch except the fastball. I can always adjust myself to the curveball. A good example, playing against the Dodgers 
and Brooklyn. Erskine, pitching. Okay? Throws me 17 curveballs. I fouled them all off. And he figured, well, I got them now. I'm going to throw a fastball by him. No way I hit the ball out of the ballpark. I proved mm. the point that I hit the fastball. I look for the fastball on every pitch. If I'm looking for and they throw a fastball, I'm in a hospital. That's my theory of hitting. I'm, mm. I, I picked a lot of great hitters. Hornsby. Okay. Um, the guy here in, in Pittsburgh, I picked Ted Williams' brain, Stan Musial. Okay. Each one is a different hitter. Okay. But Hornsby was with the um, Cubs, okay, and also with the Mets. And in the lobby in the hotel, I'd sit and talk baseball with him, hitting with him, and I, I would, you know, find out different things. Paul Weiner was a different hitter. I was a different hitter. Kiner was a different hitter. But Ralph always said to me when he was with Pittsburgh, he says, watch the way they pitch me, and that's the way they're going to pitch you because you're a power hitter. And it so worked out that that's what the truth was, and I thanked him all the time because Ralph and I were pretty good buddies. Amazing. That's great. And now, I think that's, that's how we have to segue, more. though, is, is Ralph, Ralph Kiner, right? Like, like that, that is what, what's amazing is what, what was it like for you, Frank, having Ralph Kiner be part of the broadcasting crew when you guys were such good friends as, as Pittsburgh Pirates? Well, you know, uh, you know, I never asked for any favors, okay? But he had me on the shows quite a bit because of the games that I played, and I did well. And I really appreciated everything like that. And I, I knew the, the problem that he had with Ricky, okay, when he says, you know, how, where do we finish, Ralph? Ralph says last. He said, well, we can finish last without you, too. That was, his, that was, <laughs> right. that was Ricky's answer to him. Always. Hello. Mike, take it. Mr. Thomas, Mike speaking. Okay. And um, uh, we're going to go back to 1958. You played okay. with Kate who had some great seasons with the Reds. You played with okay. Bill Mazeroski. But in right field, you played with a rookie named Roberto Clemente. Absolutely. Tell us about that. Well, Roberto, you know, I, I played with him. He came, he came to the Pirates in 1955, okay, and I played with him from 56, 57, 58, okay, and 50, before the 59 season, or after the 58 season when I was traded, okay? Roberto was a great player, okay? But he did things that baseball players don't like for someone to do, where the fans love his great arm. And he had a great arm, okay? But let me give you an example. Let's say I'm playing first base. Opposing team has a man on second base. Ball hit the right field. Roberto charges the ball, throws the ball over my head into the catcher. If we don't get that runner that's coming in from second base, the man who hit the ball ends up on second base. That proved the point to you? Yes, sir. And, but I, I, I used to chew him out to no end, 
you know, I be, I became good friends with him. In fact, when I left baseball and and coached the little pirates, I had I had one of his sons playing for me, and I I tried to teach him. You know, he walked off the field one time, and I says, "Your dad wouldn't like that." I said, "You're going to let down the, the players that are they're here with you because you're not doing very well." Get back out there and put that uniform on and, and go out and, and be the same type of kid that, that your dad was. Right? Good advice. You know, we had, we probably had the greatest outfield in baseball with the greatest arms, yeah. Clemente and Wright. And when we got Bill Verdon, I, I would see, I come up as a center fielder. And my first game against the Dodgers, I threw two guys out of third and one at home. All right, and when we got Frank, Burton, Frank, do you remember who those three people are? Do I remember who what the people I the threw three out? Three people you threw out, yeah. They were they were just Dodgers, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good answer, right? Yeah, yes, sir. <laughs> but anyway, um, and they moved me over to left field, so nobody ran on us. I mean, I was always taught that outfielders all they have to do is chase the pitcher's mistakes and hit the cutoff man. That's all they have to do. And it's simple. But they don't do it. You don't have anybody who has good arms today. Very few of them. They can't throw anybody out at home plate. Marte from the Pirates, now he's with Arizona. He's got a good arm. Frank, if I may, you were on uh, the Cubs in 1960. What was it like watching your old team win the World Series that year? (laughs) I got a lot, I got a lot of tickets for the World Series because the ones that weren't using their tickets I bought because a lot of fans wanted them because it was my hometown. But uh, it was tough, okay. You know, playing for a team that has nine managers. If you're liked by one manager, you're going to play. If you're not liked by the by anybody else, yeah, you're not going to play. That's simple. Yeah. I mean, I played with, you know, I played with 15 Hall of Famers in my career. 15. 15 pretty good hitters, 15 pretty good infielders, and everything. And I was very fortunate, okay, and I always had the reputation that as soon as I would come out of any clubhouse, of any ballpark, the fans would line up and I would sign the autographs for each and every one until I had to catch the bus and go to the airport. And I would then tell the kid, write to me at the ballpark and you will hear from me. And I had that reputation. If they would line up, I'd, I'd stay there until it was finished. But if they start crowding around me, I'd stop because it's throwing the ink at you and your clothes and everything like that. So I had that reputation. I was well liked by the fans in, in, most of the ballparks, okay, Chicago, Philadelphia, okay, Milwaukee, which is an ethnic town, and me being Lithuanian and Slavish, you know, uh, it paid out pretty well. Uh, Rick, Excellent. if I may. Sure. Um, you know, I, I was seeing that you also played for Houston, which was, you know, in many ways the Mets' counterpart. What was it like uh, uh, being on the other side of things? Obviously, you know, they came into play uh, as Colt 45s, and by the time 
I'm, I'm pretty sure you were with them by by the, that time. They were the Astros in '65. I, I, put, I played against Houston, you know, and, and when they were the Colts. Okay? And then when I was when I was sold to them uh, in 19, let's see, 1965. All right, and then my last hit with the Phillies was a home run. My last hit with the Houston ball club was a home run. Okay, every time I hit a home run, I said I better quit hitting home runs because I'm gonna get traded again. <laughs> but people always ask me, you know, how come you got traded so much? Well, my kids always used to say this on because I made the Sports Illustrated. I was the first pirate on Sports Illustrated in 1958, only 25 cents. Okay, and my my uh, one of my granddaughters. Okay. Or, uh, got me a Sports Illustrated puzzle with my picture. Put it together, and on the bottom of this it says, "My kids, nobody knows him, but everybody wants him." My kids turn around and says, "Everybody knows him, and nobody wants him." As kids will always be. Yeah, rude. They're rude. Right. They're rude. The, the, he, he, uh, I'll pass it over back to you, Rich, after this. But my question is you basically were the 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 standard for Met Slugger. Uh, you know, everybody will always go back to f- what Frank Thomas did in nineteen sixty two. If you can talk about that, just just being the first home run hitter and and also in terms of, of the launch angle uh and what you know, home run hitters are looking for these days. Uh, uh, kind of tie in, you know, your legacy as the Met slugger, uh, and what is going on now. Well, you you know, the thirty four home runs by an expansion club is a record, and it'll stand forever until they get another expansion club. But playing in the Polo Grounds, okay, and and being the first Met to hit a home run in the Polo Grounds, you know. I've had a lot of firsts, okay, in that respect. And uh, that's what makes baseball so wonderful. You know, you can go out today and go 0 for 4, then you can go out the next day and go 4 for 4, all right? I always said, like I said at the beginning of the show, when I could go into the clubhouse and say to myself, I gave 100% of the God-given talent given to me today, I didn't care what anybody said, you know, I was playing one time we were in, in Chicago with the Mets in 62, and I was hit in a kind of a little slump, all right? And I was in the, on the bus reading the uh, pamphlet of uh, Billy Graham, okay? And one of the writers in, in, from the Mets came in and saw me. I was reading. He says, oh, he says, you're trying, you're trying to get the good Lord to help you. And I, I turned to him and I says, let me ask you a question. Have you ever tried to write something nice about somebody that's going bad? He couldn't answer me. But that's the way that's the way writers are. Writers at that particular time were altogether different than the writers that I played for prior to that. Mm-hmm. I could go to Dick Young, okay, and he would never print. I said, off the record? He said, I will never print it, Frank. Okay? And same way in Pittsburgh. Okay, the ones that I would that I knew, the ones that I knew that were you know, say something, and they're saying it for a simple reason, because they want to name, uh, make a name for themselves. And they don't care if they hurt the ball player or not. 
and it's wrong. It's wrong. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Mike. Mr. Thomas, the next person I'm going to bring up, you played both with and against him. His name is Gil Hodges. Why do you Absolutely. suppose? Why do you suppose he's not in the Hall of Fame today? Well, Hall of Fame is a popular contest. He should be in because he played in Brooklyn. I mean, if you go if you go to the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, and you go in the room where all his all the pictures are, seventy five percent of the Hall of Famers are from New York, Giants, Los Angeles, Brooklyn, Chicago, uh, St. Louis, okay, Yankees. Why he's not in the Hall of Fame? Boggles my mind. There are some that are in the Hall of Fame that shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame, and there are some that are in the Hall of, and <laughs> that are not in the Hall of Fame that should be in the Hall of Fame. Jim Cott, for one, okay, and and Gil Hodges. Well, whether somebody had some grudge against them, you know, and wouldn't vote for them, and, and said some of the other ways don't vote for them, it boggles my mind. Uh, I don't think it's a fair situation myself. I will never get in the Hall of Fame. And my statistics are better than the bottom four who are in the Hall of Fame. And why? Because we don't have any votes in Pittsburgh. Mazeroski would have never made the major would have never made the Hall of Fame if Williams was still alive. As Williams always said, Hall of Fame is for hitters and pitchers, not fielders. So so that that's something interesting too, is that it's not just Ted Williams that seems to have thought that it's the entire hall of fame. And right, right. Because there was no particular, like, like, and, and that's the thing. Stats are kind of a brand. Each stat is a brand and there is no speci- specific stat for defense. It is for the most visceral parts of baseball. Yep. Maz was a great, a great infielder. So was uh, Ozzie Smith. Okay. They belong in the Hall of Fame because they were, they were great fielders, okay? I never realized that when they moved me in from left field to play third base with the Pirates, uh, first of all, when I played first base, I didn't think the ball ever hit Maz's glove on a double play. I found that out when I played first base. When I played third base, I couldn't get, you know, couldn't figure that out. But he had great, great arms. I think I've only seen him knocked down once. I got a picture of him being knocked down. But uh, he was quick with the hands and just got rid of the ball in a hurry. Great, great infield. He's godfather to one of my kids. Hmm. Rich. Very cool. Um, so we've talked a lot about your career. And by the way, you're listening to the Metzian podcast with Sam Rich and Mike, and we have an incredibly special guest original Met Frank Thomas joins us tonight. And so we've talked a lot about your career. We, you know, we talked a little bit about the, the 50s. We talked about when you were, went to the Mets and what that experience was like. So what I'd like to ask you to tell us about was here you are, it's 1964. It's August of 1964. You've been with the Mets for two and a half years. And as you said, you know, it, it, you gave your all every game, a lot of frustrating losses, especially early, you know, those late losses. At some point in August of 1964, someone comes to you and says, Frank, we're trading you to the Philadelphia Phillies. 
The Phillies are in the pennant race at that point, so you're going from the Mets, who are you know struggling. You're going to Philadelphia Phillies, who are in the pennant race. I believe, if my memory serves, you know, from my baseball history, they ended up not winning the division that year. But you go to them while, or winning the pennant that year, I should say, you go to them while they are in the thick of it. They end up in second place. So you go from the Mets to the competing Phillies. How was that news broken to you, and what what were you thinking in the moment when you were traded into a pennant race? I had this happen to me twice. I went from Chicago on the bus, and the manager, when I got off the bus, he says, you're, you're changing uniforms. You're going to the Braves. And, I'm, and, I, and, and that day, hit a line drive off of the right-hand pitcher that won the ball game for the Braves. I had the same experience with the Mets. Got on the bus, got into Philadelphia. Casey's at the bottom of the uh, bus waiting for me to come out. He says, Frank, you're going, we just traded you to Philadelphia. Well, I didn't care who I went to, to be honest with you, because like I said at the beginning, I love baseball. I, you know, I always told my wife at that particular time, even though I was going with her, I says, you know what? Baseball is my first love. Okay? I said, <laughs> and I says, after I retire, I says, I will move you up to number one. And she didn't like that. <laughs> but, but I was just kidding around with her because, but that's my feeling on how much I love the game of baseball I think it's the best sport that there is. I mean, I played football. I played basketball. I was an all-around player. I even played hockey when I was up in the seminary. Okay, I was a goalie. And uh, But the 64 team, when I got to them on August the 7th, they were a half a game in front. With me hitting home runs in the late innings, took them to a six-and-a-half game lead. And then we had an off day, and the Dodgers came in, and I was on second base, and they had the pickoff play, and Maury Wills went around, you know, and they called me out, which I wasn't out, but my hand went underneath the bag and hit the pin, and I broke my thumb. Now, I, in the, between innings, I would put my thumb, my hand in a bucket of ice, and that game, I went two for two after my thumb was broken. And so uh, it was just a, you know, one of those things. So they took me to the hospital, and I said to the doctor, doctor, why don't you come to the ballpark every night and just give me a little pinch of uh, Novocaine to where I can grip the ball, all right, because an important play come up if I'm playing first base and I have to throw it home. Okay, if they put a, you put a cast on me, I'm not going to be able to do that. I could hit the ball with the, with the cast on, okay, because my fingers were strong enough, but they wouldn't do it. And so what happened? I was on a radio show every night and hoping that they would win. And Mark, you know, I understand what he tried to do. He tried to win the pennant and let the players get a little time of rest before the World Series would start. Uh, it was only two times in my career, 1958 with Pittsburgh, 
1964 when I was with the Phillies that I had a chance to be in the World Series. My career, nine years, I played, I was in last place. Wow. Yeah, wow. That um, that didn't didn't stop me from playing the game, you know. Uh, I I keep telling you, I I love the game. Uh, I don't like, you know, what's going on. They're going to have the the designated hitter on both leagues now, okay, and they're thinking about, you know, changing the mound, you know, because there's so many strikeouts. There's more strikeouts than there are base hits. But you know what? Who am I talking to now? Rich. <laughs> Mike. Take Mike. I know you want. I never struck out 100 times in a season. You in did not. Minor leagues until the major leagues. Never. And that, not too many players can say that. Yeah. And I listened to you... my Jack Ross Rock in Tallahassee, Florida, swing the bat because something can always happen. You can get an error. Two runners can come together. You can throw the ball wild. So you have a chance if you put the ball in play. If you don't put the ball in play, you just turn and go back to the dugout and say, why didn't I do that? Yeah. And, and, and you know, you could see it also, I mean, in terms like I'm looking at your OBP. I mean, you, you had some um, 300s, but you were swinging the bat. Absolutely. Yeah. I was hitting, I was hitting uh, 288. When you had a high average. I, I was told that, uh, you know, you're just going to be a pinch hitter. That's a tough job. I mean, I wasn't that type of hitter. I, I'd have to get four four or five swings at that pitcher, okay, the in highest, order to do the well. Highest you ever hit, the highest you ever hit was, oh, and I thought I had it, but I was looking at the OBP. Um, the highest you ever had in OB, OBP was 1954, if you want to talk a little bit about that. 1954? What did I do? Yeah. Oh well, no. Your your on base percentage that you you know when when you said you were you were swinging up there, I looked huh? at your on base percentage and you never hit four hundred with a, an on base percentage, but the highest you had was three fifty nine in nineteen fifty four. Well, things like that happen. I mean, if you're working and you go to work and you're a salesman, some days you go weeks, even months without making a sale. Same way with the game of sports. Okay. But you were also, I mean, looking at the at the walks though, um, and Rich, uh, you know, you can take it after Frank is is done here. Um, uh, with your walks th- those years, I mean, 1954, 1955, you had 51 walks and 60 walks. I would say that that that's pretty solid. You you walked a lot back then. I mean, I guess especially because you know they feared you. Well, I was walked a lot. Uh... You know, without without even facing the pitcher, okay. I mean, you faced him, but he made sure that the the the, the ball wouldn't be anywhere near the plate. Rich, please take it take it away. I will, and um, so maybe we go around one more time. I'll have one more question, and then we'll have uh, Sam and Mike each with one more. And then we'll uh, we'll wrap it up. But so so. But my my last question for you, Mr. Thomas, would be this one. You know, you you talked. You've mentioned Kiner. You know, you've mentioned Ralph Kiner a couple times about you know in the context of Ranch Ricky, and 
being Mets fans, of course, he was a part of my childhood growing up, doing the games on TV. Um, what can you tell us about you? You guys must have been you. You were like like the Bash brothers, right? You know, Ken Seiko and McGuire, back to back. I, I assume you bet you did back to back in the order. Right hand power hitters. So what was that like? I mean, what was that? Le- was that a lethal Pittsburgh offense, or what was it like playing with Ralph Kiner? Well, you know, I only played, uh, you know, half the season with him. Okay, and he got traded, and that's when I got my chance to play regular. And you know, it's always great to play with a player that will take a kid under his wing and teach him the ropes that happen in the major leagues. And that's what he did for me. And I really appreciated it. And we were always good friends. I'd see him at the bat dinner every year, okay? And we talk and we talk and we talk. And the last time I saw him, he was in a wheelchair, okay? And, you know, but we're all going to go someday, okay? I mean, I'm 91 years old right now. And I'm in, I'm in pretty good shape for my age, okay? And I thank the good Lord for giving me. I said I still have things that I want to do for the kids, okay, for my charities. And that's the way I look at life today. I take every day one one day at a time. That's great. Sam. My my last question for you is going back to the hard luck stuff uh, of 1960. And you were talking about how good of a hitting team you guys were. So let's talk about the pitching. Um, Al Jackson, Roger Craig, uh, if you could go into uh, players of that stature who, you know, really were were excellent pitchers but, but seemed to run into some hard times. Absolutely, you know. But the whole problem like that, if we would have had – a closer like they have today, all right? It makes a big difference. But let's take that for example. The closer should be not the last man in. He should pitch in the eighth inning for the simple reason because he is facing the meat of the order. The short man today is doing that. And yet he, the closer, gets benefit of being the closer and always ends up with the win, where the short man should be the one that wins the game because he faces a meter of the order. My opinion. No, I, I mean, that, that just brings up a whole other thing, is that they're talking about on uh, sports radio in New York right now, the fact that Branch, uh, Branch Ricky, wow, uh, today's Branch Ricky, Brody Van Wagenen, <laughs> two VRs. Um, they, <laughs> uh, he was talking about they're not necessarily being a closer in a, a 60 game situation. And, and, and Mike, I'm going to pass it to you on this comment is that really you want your best. It, it, it is ridiculous that it all was uh, dictated by what inning you were in as opposed to who you were actually facing. Well, it's, it's both. It's both. I mean, you know, the the last three innings of a ball game take more time than the first six innings. Just remember that, okay? Because they're changing pitchers, they're changing hitters, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, okay? 
to me, it's ridiculous. I mean, if you're a good hitter, you can hit anybody. If you're a good pitcher, you can get anybody out. That's my opinion. I was, and, I, and I wholeheartedly feel that way. Uh, I feel sorry for the kids. You'll never see another 300-game uh, winner in, as a pitcher. I was with Warren Spawn when he won his 300. I had the locker right next door to him. And that's, you know, that's really something to, to be with the pitcher that won 300 ball games in his career. Pitchers in my time, give you an example. Remember Don Newcomb? All of you remember Don Newcomb? Oh, yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah, we've heard of him. Okay. Yeah. He pitched he pitched a doubleheader against the Pirates in, in the same you know and won both games. Went went the distance <laughs> for both games. Does that tell you something? Back then look how, many, look how many innings Warren Spawn pitched. Okay? Look how many innings Robin Robert pitched. Look how many innings Carl Erskine pitched. Jim Hearn. Okay. Uh Rush for the Cubs. Uh, just to name a few. Okay. Uh, I used to talk to some of these pitchers, and I, I, I remember I talked to Ned Garver, and I talked to, and I played with uh, Robin Mars, Robin Roberts in in Houston. I used to say, "Did you throw hard for the whole nine innings?" He said, "Hell no. I only threw hard when I had to." And if you take Robin Roberts' career, you will notice that most of his home runs were hit with one man on base or nobody on base. Hello? No, no, no. We're, yep. we're here. Uh, Mike, please, take it away. Well, you guys literally stole my thunder. Uh, Mr. Thomas, I, I was going to mention Don Newcomb, and I was going to mention Sandy Koufax. You faced them. You faced some Hall of Fame pitchers. Mike, you, were aware, you were aware of Bob Seller. Uh, growing up as a 10-year-old, I'm sure you heard stories of Walter Johnson and Christy Matthewson taking a week. Oh, absolutely. But the I'm, asking, don't know that. I'm asking you, I guess, to compare. Is there such a thing as comparing and contrasting pitchers, the modern pitchers versus pitchers of a bygone era? Did Walter Johnson throw as hard as they say he did? Did Bob Seller throw as hard as they say he did? Can he compete with these yeah. guys who throw 100 miles an hour today? Yeah, yeah, but they but they mixed their pitches up. I mean, they didn't throw hard consistently because that's what they tell the kids today. Give me six strong innings, throw as hard as you can, and then we'll take you out and we'll bring in the long man, and then we'll bring in the short man, and then we'll bring in the closer. I've never seen so many Tommy John surgeries that is happening to the modern day players today because of that. Right. You got to learn how to pitch up here, you know, and like uh, Bob Gibson, you know, he's at a uh, Dapper Dam, uh, not a Dapper Dam, but uh, a ba- uh, the banquet in New York, okay, the bat dinner. He, he got up and somebody asked him a question. You were notorious for throwing the ball inside and hitting people. He says, no. You see, inside is part of my play. Belongs to me. You can have the rest of the plate. And that's the way he pitched. And he was a great pitcher because of that. And Drysdale, he was the toughest pitcher for me to hit. I mean, I hit my home runs off him, but I probably struck out 31 times against him in my career. Koufax. Fascinating. Uh, I, I had no problem with Koufax. 
<laughs> the the last thing I have, and I'll, I'll ask it as quickly and succinctly as possible. You played with Hank Aaron. Tell us about that. Yes, greatest hitter I've ever played with. Never fooled on a pitch. I saw him when I was with the Pirates, and we came north in, after spring training. And we stopped in Jacksonville, and he was playing, and he was playing second base. He had four of the darndest line drives that I've ever seen a kid hit, and I mean with authority. And I said, who is that kid? He said, that's Henry Iron. I said, well, he's not going to be down here very long. And sure enough, they brought him up, and they made an outfielder out of him. He was a great outfielder, and people have always asked me, how would you compare him with Clemente? Well, who would you take? I would take Aaron over Clemente, and the reason why is because Henry had just as good an arm. You know, he didn't show it off like a lot of people, like Clemente did, okay? He hit more home runs. He stole more bases. He drove in more runs, okay? Now, next thing I was asked, who was the greatest ball player in your time that you played against? And it has to be Willie Mays. Why? Because Willie can beat you four or five different ways. He was the ultimate of a professional ball player. That makes sense. You guys, that makes you a guys, lot of you sense. Do you guys want my address so you can send, send, send uh, $22 for, those, for that picture? Absolutely. We'll make sure to talk about all of that uh, when we're not on air. Uh, but at the same time, I guess, I mean, you know what, Frank, go ahead. Go ahead, if, if, you know, because uh, we want everybody to know about this charity. Okay. Well, like, like I said at the beginning, my charities are Camp Happy Days, Kids Kick Cancer, and Courageous Kids a Safe Haven for Kids with Cancer. These people give tomorrow's happiness today to children who suffer with this dreadful disease today. I thank you for them. Okay. And everybody who sends for that picture, which is $22, includes the envelope and the postage and the inscription that I write on the picture. And I also include a signed card for you, okay, with all of my Major League Baseball career stats on the back of it. I also sell 8x10 color and 8x10 black and white photos from all the Major League teams I played for to benefit these two charities. Okay, I said. Shoot, shoot, guys, hold on. Uh, we'll have to get Frank back on here. Hold on for a oh, second. Oh no, do that promptly. <laughs> With pace. Yeah, I, I want him to say exactly how people purchase those photos because I I still don't know. In the meantime, what a fascinating person. Ninety-one years old. Uh, happy happy belated birthday to him. I believe uh, June 11th was his birthday, 91. Uh, we can only hope we're in that that, that kind of shape when we're, we're 91. Heaven willing. I hope I'm in that kind of shape tomorrow. <laughs> Sharp as a tack, too. Absolutely. I do hope we get him on, but some of these stories have been fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's been remarkable. Uh, he didn't write uh, answer the seven two four area code, 
So you guys continue, and I'll be right back. Okie dokie. Thank you, Sam. So, you know, Mike, as I think about what we just heard from from Frank Thomas, uh, the first thing that jumps out to me is a couple things. Number one, the Branch Ricky stories are exactly what we've heard, you know, about about, Jackie Robinson. Okay. We got Frank. Awesome. Go ahead, Frank. So I'm going to give you my address, okay, and and my phone number, okay, and um, you can talk about it. You know, I, people call me. I, I enjoy talking baseball to anybody, and that's the kids like me because I do that, and I vowed that I would never pass up a kid, and I still do that today. As long as they follow my instructions, they will get an autograph signed by me. And I sign everything that I send out. I used to write a, a letter to each and every one of them, handwritten, but it's got to a point now because I'm getting so much fan mail that it's bothering my fingers. And so I had my girlfriend make up a, a sheet for me, okay, and... I just signed that, and if there's any questions they ask me, I put it on the bottom of that that, that sheet. So, so you guys know where my address is: 4202 Lenox Oval, Pittsburgh, PA, 15237-1659. And like I said, the picture only costs twenty-two dollars. And remember, you're going to spend twenty-two dollars more on something you don't want. Okay where you can give $22 and sit back and say, dear God, I helped some young kid to enjoy his life a little bit. Thank you. Thank you. Hello. Thank you for all you're doing. Have any more questions? Rich. That's it? Well, we've covered everything. I did want to ask you um, who the toughest pitcher, and you, you commented on that already the toughest pitcher right. for you in your career. Um, you talked about the greatest player ever played with and the greatest player ever played against, which I thought that was, uh, of course, very fascinating. The only thing I, w- I would close with is this. You, know, you, you played Cincinnati. You played in Philadelphia. You played in Milwaukee. You played in Pittsburgh, which is your hometown. Um, if you had to say, hometown aside, which place did you enjoy the most and why? Well, let me tell you this. You, know, you mentioned hometown. If I had to do it all over again, I would never play in my hometown. And people say, why? Because if you're a home run hitter, they want you to hit a home run every time you come to bat. And it's been proven that you're only going to hit a home run maybe once every 10 or 11 times at bat. I enjoyed every team I played with. I enjoyed every player that I played with, okay? Uh, I like certain ball ball parks because of the distance in left center and left field, more so than some of the others. And I, I enjoy the fans in Philadelphia. I enjoy the fans in New York tremendously. Uh, I enjoy the fans in Chicago. I enjoy the fans in Cincinnati, okay, more so than I enjoy the fans here in Pittsburgh where I grew up, 
okay? And But that's the way life is, okay? I always say this, you know, Jesus was never hiked in his hometown, okay? So that's an example, okay? It happens to people who play in their hometown. <laughs> All right? Well said. Well said, Sam. You, you, you got my address. Yeah. And you got oh. my phone number. When you call, call the second number, the 724 number, because that one I can hear better on. You know, I'm in an age now. I was in great shape until I was 82. And then it all started. First, it was a left hip replacement. Then it was cataracts. Then it was hearing aid. Then I got hit in the mouth with a golf ball. Then it was a right hip replacement. Then I had blood infection septus, which is very dangerous, but they still haven't found out what happened, why it happened, okay? But the good Lord pulled me through that, okay? And then the last thing I had, I had a, uh, a pinch in the a, center of the bum of my, you know, my bum, okay? And I went to the uh, surgeon who operated on my hip, my right hip, because uh, this happened four, four months after I had it done. And he says, your hips are right. He says, they took an x-ray. He says, but, he says, you have tendonitis in the center of your bum. Never heard of it. So it's like a tennis elbow. So I went to my primary doctor. First of all, the surgeon says, we'll, go, we'll let you go for 12 weeks with therapy, which I did. After the 12 weeks, I went to my primary doctor, and it was still bothering me. And he says, we'll do some more therapy. I says, forget it. I know my body. I said, all you want to do is send me the therapy, and, and I know what has to be done better than this. I said, I came to you to ask you, what is the reason why this is happening in my rear end? He got huffy with me. He says, I'm the, uh, he says, I'm the, um, the, the professor. I said, well, if you are, tell me. And because he got huffy with me, and I was with this doctor for about 35, 36 years. I went and took because he did that, I wouldn't change my doctors. All right. Now, I went to a chiropractor who was the son of the first doctor that I ever went to. Four sessions with him. I haven't had any problems since. So it just goes to show you. You know, it's, it's money no matter what, where you look. <laughs> Here's what I, I will finish with, Frank, if, if I may call you Frank. Sure. I've been called worse. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, us as Met fans are used to collapsing, quote unquote. Uh, other like the idea of 1962 and and giving it up in the the last of the innings, which is which is ironic from from the the foundation of the the franchise. But you know, we we last really had a big collapse at the hands of the Phillies. Can you? I know you touched a little bit on the 1964 Phillies, but can you also? touch on the idea of going to that team and then losing the pennant. Well, that that happens. I mean, that's why that's why baseball is the, the greatest game that, that there is because you never know what's going to happen day in and day out, okay? And, you know, people think that baseball is a great, you know, a, a great uh, – you know, to, you know, to to play, but you know it, it's not the greatest uh, thing in the world. You know you've got to be in shape for 162 games plus the spring training, okay? And if you're not in shape and if you don't take good care of yourself, you know you're not going to last very long, 
I mean, you took all the players that have played this game. How many players that play anywhere from 16 to 20 years in the major leagues? Not very many, okay? Because it takes a toll on you over the course of a year. So I always say that, you know, take care of yourself, okay? You know, you're, you're, you're on the road, you know. I used to take my fan mail on the road. I never answered my fan mail at home because it gave me something to do. When I was with Milwaukee, Don McMahon says, let's go. He was my roommate. He said, let's go to the movies. <laughs> and I never went to very many movies until I, until I played with Milwaukee. And Don would always say, let's go to a movie. I just felt it was going to hurt my eyes, and I stayed away from it. But these are the things that happen in all of baseball. you got some teams that have never won the World Series. you got other teams that win it, like the Yankees, nine and ten times. You know, it's one, it's one of those things. Hello. One of, one of those things. Yep. One of those. Yep. Mike, take it away. I'll go back to 1962, Mr. Thomas. You know, you played with Al Jackson and Roger Craig, uh, Gus Bell, good seasons. You played with Charlie Neal, good seasons until come to the Mets. You obviously played with Richie Ashburn, Gil Hodges. I just want to thank you because uh, I think the 62 season is a marvelous story. And after speaking with you this evening, it's clear to me, and I think it's clear to everyone listening, that you were most definitely a clubhouse leader, even amongst the names that I just mentioned. And on behalf of New York City fans, me being a native New Yorker, I just want to thank you for the very kind words that you have for New York City fans. Well, I thank you for that. I tell it as it is. I don't pull any punches. No, you don't. Uh, and Pitch, I'll pass it back to you as we close in on uh, uh, about nine. Well, thank you, Mike. Thank you, Mr. So, Mr. Frank Thomas, on behalf of the Metzian podcast with Sam Rich and Mike, I just want to say it's been an absolute pre- pleasure talking baseball with you, sir. Your stories have been amazing. The charitable work you do is equally amazing, and I encourage everybody listening to this to please do buy uh if not one, several pictures that Mr. Thomas has available. Clearly the money goes to a great cause. And um, and with that said, we're going to wish you much health. We're going to wish you a great evening. And thank you one more time for joining the Metzian podcast. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. I appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. Thank okay. you. Yep. Thank you, Frank. Bye-bye. All right. Bye now. Gentlemen, Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.